Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi everyone, it's Anna. I have to tell you, I'm really excited for you guys to hear today's podcast. I had Margaret Quinlan, Maggie, and Bethany Johnson on the podcast. They are both from North Carolina and they work at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And I am partial to North Carolina and to North Carolina people because that is where I grew up. More importantly, this is episode 11, and so we've made it past our first 10 episodes, and I love what we talk about in this episode. Maggie and Bethany wrote a book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering, Media, and Medical Expertise. And so in this podcast, we talk lots of stuff about their book, as well as being a mom. We touch on some infertility, we talk about social media, we talk about the history of the NICU, we talk about limits of viability, we talk about shame and guilt over having a baby in the NICU, and even touch a little bit on um, the current race crisis and disparities in outcomes between white and black moms. I really hope you like this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. It has some great stuff in it. If you take nothing else home from this episode today, I really hope you take home the fact that the perfect mom doesn't exist. She never did. And so as moms, we are not aiming to be perfect. We are just showing up and doing our best every day for our kids. When you are done listening to this podcast, if you enjoyed it, please go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our podcast. It makes a huge difference for us in terms of other people being able to find the Mighty Littles podcast. And as always, you can reach out to me, Anna, A-N-N-A, at MightyLittles.com and send me feedback. What do you like about the podcast? What are you hoping to hear? What would you like me to do differently? Uh, I really want this podcast to be something that is beneficial to all of you. Put the good feedback on Apple Podcasts and send me the emails where you want me to do something different. Hi everybody, this is Anna Zimmerman and I am the host of the Mighty Littles Podcast. Today I'm super excited to have Maggie Quinlan and Bethany Johnson uh, here to discuss their book, You're Doing It Wrong, as well as discussing motherhood. Uh, Maggie and Bethany, why don't we start off by having you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about who you are, both from a career standpoint as well as from a mom standpoint. All right. Who should go first, Mags? You go first. Okay. Um, Hello, my name is Bethany Johnson. (laughs) I am a medical historian, and my particular focus is on the history of reproductive health and epidemics in the 19th and 20th century. And I met Maggie through my real estate agent when I moved to a city where I did not know a single soul. And within uh, three days, we were writing an article together, and a dozen articles in a book later, the rest of history, we can't, we can't quit each other. She's my academic wife. And um, <laughs> I'm also married um, in real life to a human man, and I have two kids, um, Hazel, who just turned five, and Otto, who turned two. And I'm Maggie Quinlan. I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. I study... Um, women's health. um, And as a communication scholar, I'm interested in the ways in which um, language and other symbolic systems construct um, ideas about health and healing and wellness. And I have a human husband, too. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And 
two children, one uh, who is five and the other who is two. Thank you for introducing yourself. I really just want to jump right into your book um, and let's talk about what was what was the driving force behind why you guys chose to write your book and how did you pick the title for it? You're doing it wrong. Well, I can start. Um, the story of how this got started was Bethany and I were in New York City and we were studying the history of twilight sleep, which was a birth method um, that was framed as a way to sort of take the pain away of childbirth, but instead it just erased your memory. And so <laughs> Bethany, the historian, was actually the, the first person who, who taught me about this. And, um, and so we were up in New York City collecting some more data. And while we were on this trip, um, it was 7 in the morning and Bethany was in the shower and I was, you know, just getting ready for a full day um, in the archives. And when Bethany got out of the shower, she saw, oh, a voicemail has been left. And so she answered her, her you know, she checked her, her voicemail and it was from an embryologist in Charlotte, letting her know that the infertility treatment that she and her male husband had been going through um, was not working, that the eggs were petering out and this treatment was not going to work. And so she got that news and immediately called back the clinic because the person, you know, said to call back and told her, have a great day at the end of that horrible message. And so Bethany spent the next two hours from 7 a.m. till 9 a.m. until the clinic was open because they don't answer their phones on off hours. And the embryologist was in a lab and she couldn't get a hold of the um, you know, the front desk to transfer her there. And so, you know, she, she learned this news and, and, you know, immediately called her partner and they, they had a conversation and she came back in the room and I said, you know, let's go home, let's hop in the car and, and head back to Charlotte. And she said, no, there's nothing, nothing I can do. They just told me I cannot have biological children. This is going to be her third at least and last um, chance at this or, you know, the last that they were going to do. And so, um, so what we did that, that, that week was spend every day in the archive and worked our butts off and um, collected everything that we needed. And, um, you know, and I just sat there six months pregnant at the time, um, which was, you know, just not the best time, you know, to be the two of us together going through very different experiences. And I, you know, let's do something about this as a communication scholar. What I do is study patient practitioner communication and that phone call should never have happened. Like, you're probably not the only person who's gotten a voicemail like that. Um, so let's do something about it. So by the time we got back to Charlotte, we had um, an IRB application in order to start a study about doctor-patient communication. And we started interviewing over 30 women who had been through treatment. Um, and we see women as a as broad. It was it included um, it included it was a, an open. Um, more, it became more open than that, and um, and it just went from one thing to the next. Then miraculously, um, Bethany was was able to get pregnant with her first child, and um, it was almost like one chapter led to another, led to another, and we just kept encountering um, in our own lives and friends, and we saw people on social media who were going through many different life crises, and so we kept um, you know just saying to to each other. You know, it just seems like everything somebody does or every every time we turn, somebody's there to tell us that we're doing it wrong. It could be 
the medical community, it could be our friends and family, it could be colleagues, um, you know, the list, it could be each other, you know, I mean, it just it, it <laughs> doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. And there's always going to be somebody there telling us that, that we're doing it wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we've gone through all of these things as scholars, you know, one of the questions Maggie always asks is, you know, why does this crisis feel this way for different people? Why does it feel this way for me as a white woman? What, what would it feel like for a black woman, a black trans woman, a, you know, a Jewish woman, a, an Orthodox Jewish woman? You know, Maggie, the question that she asks is why? And the question that I always ask is, how did we get here? You know, what, what, what were the things that developed over time? What are the things that we have been told to believe or used to believe at one time that we now know are no longer true that we've dragged into the present with us? How does this work? And so those are the questions that we bring into the projects that we do together. But, you know, you're doing it wrong for a long time was a joke between us because, you know, one of us would have a really bad day and sometimes the other one would be like, well, you're doing it wrong, so you know, that's, that's what the problem is here, you know, and it just, it stuck with us. And it was like this thing that we said, and, you know, but we thought like, oh yeah, that's what people are actually hearing all the time. And that's what's so frustrating to us about going through these experiences is that we hear it so many different ways and so many different times. So we're going to have to, that's going to be the first part of the title of our book, no matter what. Yeah, no, I actually think it's a phenomenal title because it's true that everybody hears you're doing it wrong, right? So my grandmother, so I, we, my husband and I also went through infertility treatments and had several miscarriages and losses. And we were successful with an IUI cycle for my first baby. Um, and then my twins were IVF um, after four failed IUI cycles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, we've run the gamut. We've gotten pregnant. We've lost those babies. We didn't need fertility treatments. We We've done all of them, but I will never forget the time my grandmother said, well, if you just weren't so fat, you'd be able to get pregnant. And I was like, okay, I, yeah, I could lose a few pounds, but I'm not like an enormous whale. Like my, I, I'm healthy. I work out. I eat good. This has nothing to do with my, my ability to get pregnant. And then you, you're doing it wrong because you're, you ended up with a C-section or, oh, you're doing it wrong because you don't want an epidural or you're doing it wrong because you refuse to supplement with formula or you're doing it wrong because you're going to only bottle feed your babies because of whatever is going on. And there's this huge push to be this perfect mom who's doing it right but everybody's doing it wrong in your medical history and your communication stuff where did this concept of the perfect mom come from i think we running up against seeing the models that are available to us in the media you know in movies or um you know in other and other avenues of the, what is the ideal mother. And it kept, the list kept getting longer, I think the more that we researched it, but it was, you know, white, middle-class, um, well-educated or educated, thin, able-bodied, heterosexual, married, and, you know, the list kept, kept going on and on, right? And so Bethany and I joke all the time because we, do have a lot of those characteristics, right, of, of mm -hmm. being, of, of, of fitting that, but yet, in so many ways, we, we fail to meet those, that standard that it's, 
it's not achievable for anyone. Um, and so, you know, sort of deconstructing that and taking a look at, okay, these are the standards and how can we still feel like we are good parents or, you know, doing the best that we can given that the ideal is not something achievable for us. Yeah. I think what's so, um, and I hope that this is, if, if your listeners take nothing else away from this podcast, please take this away from it. It is not possible to meet the standard that is set because the standard doesn't exist. It has never been real. Now, let me give you a metaphor here. I don't know. And I'll tell you, I haven't seen this film since I was young, but I want to give this film as an example because I'm certain that people haven't looked at it, particularly the way that I'm going to talk about it for a second. So as Maggie said, middle class is one of the boxes people want to take. But let me be clear, you have to be middle class with an upper class level of resources to actually achieve the type of motherhood that is being projected. Okay, so we label it as middle class and we mean middle class. What it literally has to be is super upper class level of money. Okay, so let's think about the film Meet Me in St. Louis. Yeah, Judy Garland, right? Chang 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 goes the trolley or whatever. Um, So that that mother in that film is sort of was known as a good mother when the film was made um i think like really religious families like mine were allowed to watch that's one of the few movies we were allowed to watch growing up they had a full-time woman there making ketchup from scratch y'all okay this woman had a lot of children there was a whole third adult who was paid to live there full-time like slept there did not leave that woman and the mother spent the whole film making ketchup and the children were just like out in the city on public transportation. What would people say about this mother today? Your teenager is out just playing on the subway and you're home making ketchup? Like what's wrong with you? Even with a whole other adult there making food from scratch, these children were not necessarily under anybody's guidance, right? They were out out in the community. So even if you dig the tiniest bit, if you take out a little teaspoon and scrape off the top of anything, whatever you're being shown as the model of motherhood, it falls apart because it's not actually achievable. It's never been achievable. And and it certainly isn't achievable now. It is a political project, which is what I talk about in my women's history class. The idea from the founding of our country has been to produce worthy citizens. That is the political project. And I mean that in the body politic, not in a political party sense. You know, the idea is how do we, Teddy Roosevelt talked about this. George Washington talked about this. The Pinckney family was held up in the revolutionary area. This has been a cyclical story that we've been telling, a narrative that we've been telling. And we've always held up one or two people as the example. They've always been white, you know, and then it started bleeding into Hollywood. You had your June Cleaver or whatever, um, but if you look really close, uh, it, it just, it's not real. It's not achievable. One of the things that I will always stick in my head is, um, at some point somebody was talking about how Brady Bunch, right? So they have the, they're this middle class, they have Alice, the housekeeper, um, the three girls and the three boys, and they came from both sides and well, the Brady Bunch is the perfect family. And I just remember somebody saying, but Mike Brady died of AIDS. 
I think that just (laughs) amplifies the idea that there is no perfect family. Um, And I think also that everybody comes at family with their own ideals of what they think are going to be important. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody has different things that they really want out of parenthood. But within those different things that they want, they're still trying to achieve this unachievable ideal that doesn't exist because you can't take all of these things and be perfect at all of them. You can, Mm -hmm. you can only do some of all of them. That's right. And it assumes that you're going to welcome a child into your home that is going to, you know, be signed up for those same things. And we've all had situations, desires, something that we wanted with a child of ours. And that child was like, no, thank you. I'm a whole human being. And I say no to that idea. And I will not be convinced. My first daughter, I would, I was like, hey, you know, maybe I'll wait a couple weeks. I'll give her a passy and see if that helps her. She's, you know, she really likes nursing a lot. She wouldn't take, that child never took a bottle, never took a passy. She was like, no, thank you. So that was very limiting to me as a parent. And people were like, well, have you tried? I'm like, look, get in your car and come to my house. You try it. You know, we, we had lactation consultants, the whole thing. And they were like, no, this child will not have a bottle. I see that you've tried 12 kinds. This child will not have one. Um, my other child was like, I don't care what it is. I will drink milk through a straw, a spoon, whatever. Also, yes, I'll have a passy. Can I have a passy and a bottle at the same time? Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, like they couldn't be more different, but I was the same mother to them. So I think we also assume that what's going to be important to us is just going to naturally show up in our children. And I don't know about you all, but my children have very distinct personalities and ideas about who they are in the world right from the very beginning. And I think you you bring up a really good point, Bethany, of talking about sort of the myth of the stay-at-home mom that we saw in the 1950s that mm-hmm. you've been in historical records where you know that is not the case. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so just the the uh, labor records that the U.S. has on file, that was uh, in the post-World War II context, we started seeing that women were working part-time or they were not getting hourly wages. They were sort of getting these, um, I don't know how to describe it, but about 53% of the women who were quote-unquote stay-at-home were actually working a minimum of 20 hours a week to maintain the lifestyle that we keep hearing over and over that um, one family could live on one wage. Um, even at the time when that was most true, it still wasn't true for more than half of the population that fell under that heading. Um, so I think we also need to continue to talk about what what we have on record, right? So it's not a particular opinion for me to say that. I'm just looking at the labor records when we see a claim like that. Um, they were just, you know, sitting in boxes. No one was necessarily trying to make that claim, but the the knowledge was there to have. And my grandmother was one of these people. I was told my whole life that my grandmother was a stay-at-home mom and she raised her kids and blah, blah, blah. Well, she was the secretary of my dad's elementary school for 25 years. She has a pension. She had a pension. You don't not work and get a pension. That's not, that's not how this works. So I remember saying to my dad, like, why does she have a pension? If she stayed at home and he was like, oh, I mean, well, she was the school secretary. <laughs> like that's an afterthought. <laughs> Right. And I yeah. was like, she had to work 20 to 30 hours a week for that. So to come again about like, like, so even my own family with a worker perpetuated this myth for me. 
And it was never true. <laughs> and good for her. She got a pension. My grandfather died. She needed that. You know, I'm glad that was there for her. But don't be out here telling me, you know, she was a stay at home when that's not really the story. Right. No, because it wasn't the story at all. She was the secretary. I mean, she had a job. She had a job. It's interesting to me with the current COVID coronavirus crisis that, um, so first of all, homeschooling is homeschooling. Homeschooling <laughs> is when you have somebody at home who has a curriculum where yep. it's designed for you to teach your kids for a couple hours a day and you that is who you are is a homeschooler, right? So that's homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Having your children be at home and getting lessons online from their teachers, that is not homeschooling. That is parent schooling. I don't even know what to call it, but it's not homeschooling. Um, And so I think we've done ourselves a big disservice by trying to pretend that those two things are the same. Mm -hmm. But really the point of my question is, as we've been doing this non-homeschooling schooling at home, the majority of the brunt of that work has fallen to the moms. And lots of people have shown that it has fallen to the moms, um, which is the case in my house too, right? So any any of that stuff falls to me. Um, And I work full-time and my husband works full-time, but I'm still the one that's, that's doing it. Or when I'm at work and I have a babysitter for all of my kids, then my babysitter is doing it. And so... The second thing that's coming as a result of this is that women are being pulled back out of the workforce because you cannot watch kids full time and have a full time job and run their curriculum and their education. And so I don't I don't know that I particularly have a point or an exact question, but I find it fascinating that it's 2020 it's 2020 and we're still falling back on these ideals from the 50s of well the mom is going to do it and but the mom is still working but the mom's not really getting credit for either thing that she's doing for me part of that is because we thought that ever happened it gives us the space to expect people to do it now my husband is delightful and I'm sure he's really tired of me being like, let's review what never occurred. You know, he, he's very used to me, like sort of blowing up this narrative, but the dynamic that we've been struggling with is that I can move my work into the space of our home and he can't, he has to have direct lines to certain institutions that can also be recorded we have a telephone now in our house that the lines can be recorded, but it's without the direct line. Without that direct line, the calls aren't legal under federal law. So there are times he has to go into a deserted office and make these calls. So if there's something that I had to do, either my two and five-year-old will be with wolves or I will reschedule it. Um, Particularly when we were in lockdown quarantine, we weren't Definitely, we weren't having anyone that even could help us in our house. That was just not a risk I was willing to ask someone else to take in case we were healthy carriers or on good antibody tests. You know, just it just wasn't going to happen. But what that meant was I would do a full day with the kids. I would work during nap time, and then I would go back to work after dinner. My partner would come home, do dinner and bedtime with the kids, and then go clean the kitchen. 
after a 10 hour day of work and like set up coffee and everything for the morning so that I could work. But what that meant was at the end of the day, we both were, had fumes. We had nothing. We had nothing. But if my partner does those dishes, if I tell a story where my partner does the dishes after all of a sudden he's going above and beyond. And it's like, hello, do you not see what I'm doing every day, all day of this whole experience? I really think it's rooted in people's assumptions of what women have done and what women can do becomes what women should do. Um, doc, you know, nurses and teachers and mothers, we are the most lauded and the least rewarded in our culture. When you have the ability to be flexible with your day, it's a blessing because you can move things around. But when you have the ability to be flexible with your day, you are now filling up your day with more and more and more that eventually Mm -hmm. you will become burned out and resentful. um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because it is all falling on you. I, I'm not. A, I'm not a fan of COVID. Uh, it's wreaked yeah, havoc. Yeah, it's been it's been real rough. I mean, Maggie, everything it's in been my for life you too, because Maggie also teaches summer courses. So it's not like, you know, I'm preparing for some big exams. We have a couple of projects going right now, but you know, Maggie got a week or two break and then got a couple hundred more students to slap onto this ex- extended period. Um, and I kept forgetting and being like, hey, can I send this to you? She was very patient with me. And she was like, um, yeah, I have to grade 200 essays today. So I'm like, sorry, I forgot about. Uh. So like, I, I'm like, I'm the person who's getting it wrong now because I don't even remember what my work is doing. Well, I think what we're also not talking about is that, okay, if this is going to be the structure, then we need to increase FMLA for caregivers, right, for people who are taking care of young children, for um, people who have immunocompromised individuals in their house, that there has to be something. And there's, as far as I can tell, very, very little, at least in academia, of Mm -hmm. people saying, yeah, you could take the fall semester off just to, you know, to to balance what it's going to look like and and, and figure this out. So um, I'm getting terrified, which I think we all are, that come August, they're just going to tell us that there isn't, the kids aren't going to go to school and, you know, you know, so then, you know, and then I'll have, you know, zero health and zero and still having to do my, you know, my job and, and all of that. So, um, so I just feel like everybody's delaying what is, what could really happen and there's going to be no backup plan. It's just going to be figure it out. Well, and I think that's very, that's a really valid fear. My husband and I have talked Mm -hmm. about that. My husband couldn't, do his job from home and I had to go to the hospital. So we had to bring somebody in and it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't an option for either one of us to quit our jobs. Um, And so, you know, that, that's just a whole nother thing. So what's going to happen when they decide on schools? I think that the distance learning works fine for middle schoolers and high schoolers, right? They can, they're independent on their computers. They can get on their lessons. They can do their homework. They can take care of themselves, make mac and cheese in the microwave, whatever. And for kids under the age of four, there, you either have a stay at home parent or you have daycare and daycare is still open. But for the kids that are in like kindergarten, pre-K, up through elementary school, they're not independent on a computer. They can't set up their Zoom lectures. They can't make their own no. lunch. They're not going to put themselves down for their rest period. You, It just doesn't work. The, the homeschooling just doesn't work. 
And the knowledge is almost a problem here because I'm sure all of us are well aware of the importance of kindergarten. That has been drilled into me from the time I was a child, like the early years and what's the foundation you're setting and how are you setting up a love of reading? And again, like how are you performing parenthood so that you can make sure that your child meets these certain standards so they can be a type of person in the world. So now you're telling me I'm gonna have to do kindergarten at home. You know, so I feel like we went from this phase in the spring with COVID where it was like, you know what? This is a couple of months. Your kids are going to be fine. Let them eat some popcorn and like stare at some slugs and read a couple of old library books. You know, like in the good old days when no one actually entertained their children, it's fine. Okay, but is it fine for a year and a half? I feel like that narrative is going to go away even more than the very little of that that we got. And it'll become a much more high pressure situation when we're talking about long term gains disappearing. Um, you know, people are going to be out here being like, how are we going to compete with China and algebra? You know, that is what is going to come back on us this fall um, for those of us that have kids in Laurel. So one of the things that you just mentioned back, you know, you said back in the time when people let their children go unsupervised. Um, have you watched the show on Amazon Prime, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes. Okay. So do you know what I find fascinating about that show is that these parents and these adults go to their country club in the summertime and have all these fancy dinners and have all these parties and the children are nowhere to be found. Every episode I say to my husband, where are their children? Yes, that is exactly what I say too. And so I think one of my biggest frustrations with this whole perfect mom concept is that over time, this is my perception. You can tell me if your data backs it up or not. But over time, um, we've gone from, well, in the 1920s, you're, you're a stay-at-home mom, and that's what you do is you take care of the kids, to now in the 1950s, you're taking care of the kids, but they really can go out and run in the neighborhood, and you have these really close neighborhoods where kids kind of go between all these different houses, and it's safe for them to meander. And you're working part-time, but we don't really talk about that. To then in the 70s and 80s, where parents are working, but their kids are on their bike. I mean, I would take my bike out, and we would go play along this creek that was in our neighborhood, no way would I let my children would I do what I did when I was in the second grade, right? Like they, there's no way they would have that much freedom. So, you know, my parents were working, but my brother and I, we were gone all the time. So they weren't watching us. So now I need to watch the kids and I need to work. And now we've gotten past the 80s where we have to have our kids in all these activities. And so it feels like to me, We've added every different generation's worth of parental expectation, maternal expectation, and to some extent, paternal expectation. Those those expectations are increasing. I don't think quite as rapidly as the maternal ones are. Um, yeah, no. but, but, you know, I mean, they are a little bit higher. Um, and I feel like now I'm supposed to do the job of the women from the 20s and the 50s and the 70s and the 90s and the 2000s, but I don't have any more time in my day or any more resources to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think if we look back on um, so think about in the eighties, there was this big feel and, and I could do this every decade, but I'll just do it for the eighties. There was a lot of big fear about latchkey kids. 
right? Yes. Yes. They're so alone. They're not doing anything. So because there was this understanding that women were working and their children were, you know, or they weren't working, they were on their way home from work or they were inside cooking dinner and whatever, their kids were in the neighborhood. There was so much fear about the fact that these women were not spending 140% of their time taking care of their kids that we introduced something like latchkey kids. I'm also not saying that kids being alone all day is the goal, but that's never what was happening, even when parenting was very different. Um, And you see this a lot about, you know, working class families, particularly um, black families in in neighborhoods and very urban neighborhoods in the 60s and 70s there was a lot of like where are these parents they're doing a bad job um a lot of anthropological studies and sociological studies and other studies saw that these kids were going through large rich extended family units and spending a lot of time with a lot of adults they weren't spending a ton of time with their mom they're spending time with three uncles two sets of grandparents and 47 cousins and had a rich deeply bound family network and so many people looking over them that they were actually doing better than, you know, in terms of familial networks and relationships with adults and people in suburban areas were. So I think what actually is happening, but our expectations and the scare tactics that are used to keep women out of the workforce and doing quote unquote traditional work, um, those structures are mainly about putting women back in their place and not actually about creating better parents. Oh, interesting. I I could see that. Okay, let's switch a little bit since I put us on that um, COVID um, diversion. I apologize, but I thought it was fascinating. And so I really wanted to talk about it with you guys. Um, So let's go back to the book a little bit. And I want to talk about um, a little bit more about infertility and in your chapter about infertility. What strikes me the most about infertility is that it is still such a taboo subject. When you're going through infertility, most people don't talk about it. Most people aren't putting it out there. There is a little bit on social media now. There's, it's becoming more visible and and um, more recognized. And I think even now, compared with five, six years ago, when I was going through things, it's much People are much more open, but it still is really kind of a taboo subject to talk about. And I know that biologically, uh, natural selection and propagation of the fittest and you get together and you guys make a kid that's going to be better than the one before. And well, if you can't make your own kid without needing technological help, then you weren't supposed to make your own kid, right? So I know there's some of that that's involved in this taboo-ness about infertility, but I really wanted to explore more with you guys where you think that underlying not interested in talking about it feeling comes from. And, And I can tell you from my own Um, personal experience, it was hard to feel like I was doing it wrong and like I was failing every time I got pregnant. I failed and I would lose that pregnancy or then couldn't get pregnant. So then I'm failing and I'm doing it wrong because I can't get pregnant. And the idea of telling people as I was going through it was so it made it more real. And now if it fails, it fails bigger because more people know about it as opposed to if I don't tell anybody. Now I'm, I'm failing, but nobody else knows about it. It feels a little bit smaller. So that's my personal experience. But in your interviews with other people, where, where does this taboo 
topic where nobody wants to talk about infertility and fertility treatments come from? The one thing I think of as you're saying this is how it's sort of having a child or, you know, being a mother is sort of like the right of womanhood, right? That like that's the ideal woman is a child who is able to get pregnant and to, you know, to be a mother. So there's a lot of stigma around anybody who is not able to participate in that. And, you know, one thing Beth and I um, have done a lot of work with is an organization called um, Equality for Colored Girls. And that organization does a lot of really amazing educational and active work related to um, African-American women and couples with, with infertility because the stigma around infertility is, is very strong. Um, and so we've also done some interesting research surrounding um, in how communities develop on Instagram around infertility and how individuals share information and medical or technical um, information and some lay support through through social media where they create accounts that are not connected with their personal accounts so that family members and friends don't know that they're going through it. And they have some of these often, you know, very beautiful, powerful um, connections with other individuals who are going through the same treatment cycle and going through similar things. They send care packages to each other. They send medications to each other. They're, you know, they, they're very involved in each other's lives. And for me, it's sort of a way that they can sort of, um, circumvent the, the stigma around it by connecting with each other and sharing support. Yeah, like we're creating these sort of closed, cloistered communities where people can speak more freely. And you can speak more freely in part because people understand what you're saying. They know the protocol that you're talking about. They they have also done progesterone shots or crinone or, um, you know, their doctor would never use gonalef in their protocol. And you can tell the patient why and see if they're, you, you know, like just the, the exchange of information there. For us, I think it's really demonstrative of the way that people have had to create that safe space. Um, I also, like you, and I just, when I was pregnant, um, I was not supposed to be pregnant. I got pregnant without treatment. It, my, my partner and I had both had surgeries, so we think it was related to that, but I wasn't in an active infertility treatment. So not only did I have this kind of really crushing survivor's guilt, cause we had already done a couple studies, right. And I had interviewed people who had, had not gotten pregnant. Um, and I suspected that in a couple of those interviews, when I said I had never been pregnant, when they asked me, I was pregnant and didn't know. So I had a lot of confusing feelings about that. And then I just assumed I would miscarry. I wasn't supposed to be pregnant. No one knew why. So I was afraid every moment. I think I was almost 20 weeks before we even told our families. Um, And even that every day, like we just, you know, I remember my husband wanting to talk to me about like, let's talk about this baby. I remember he, he sat me down (laughs) when I was 28 weeks pregnant and he was like, Bethany, we need to start a nursery. We have to have a place to put a baby. I know that we're afraid that we won't have a baby to bring home with us, but we need to at least have a bed there in case we do, you know, (laughs) like eventually we had a baby shower, which Maggie threw for us, you know, and we had a, 
like a nursery, but I was just, I was so afraid that if I talked about it or really engaged with it or prepared, I would jinx myself. And there wasn't really a space for me to talk about that necessarily. I mean, I talked about it openly with Maggie and she was lovely about it and like made tons of space, but there were a lot of people I didn't feel like I could talk about that thing with. But it's interesting that that's your description because with my first pregnancy, it was exactly the same. I remember my mom Mm -hmm. was like, you need to paint this room and put a crib in it. And I was like, no, um, (laughs) no, I'm 24 weeks and no, it's just not going to happen. And Mm -hmm. coworkers wanted to throw a baby shower and no, um, like, and even now they will joke about how in my first pregnancy, I was in complete denial up until, I mean, I was in even in denial when I went into labor at 32 weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I just thought that I had overdone it the day before and couldn't, I went to the cafeteria to eat lunch at work and I couldn't sit down in the chair. And the nurse practitioner I was working with said, "Uh uh-uh, upstairs, let's, let's go right now to the labor and delivery. And they put me on and I'm just contracting, contracting, contracting. Um, I like total, I was in total denial that I was pregnant or I was having a baby or anything. And I think it was a defense mechanism um, to some extent yeah. Because if I was in denial, then it couldn't hurt so bad when it didn't work out again. I thought of that when you said you fail less. And I've said that to Maggie a number of times. I was like, one of the things, and, and to be clear, anytime Maggie and I are sharing our stories, if you did something differently than us, we don't think that you did it wrong. Um, so I'm not telling the story to shame anyone who made a different choice. This is very particular to me. I am always surprised when I see pregnancy announcements, like we're 10 weeks pregnant, we're 12 weeks pregnant. All I thought about was anyone I tell, I have to untell if it doesn't work out. So I will never talk about this on Facebook. Also, because I know from my own experience, it can be really hard to see pregnancy announcements as an infertile person. And so I had, you know, and and Maggie as someone who has studied with this with me for years, she was very conscious of that as well. Um, And so it might be very different in other communities. You might have friends in infertility treatment that are like, you know, tell me baby news, like post stuff. So again, I'm not making assumptions about what people should and shouldn't do. To me, it just felt like I cannot untell people that will break me. I've been through enough. And so I like consciously just kind of shut off parts of my, my brain for the experience. Well, but I think like Maggie, when you were saying that you were six months pregnant, when the news of the fertility call came in, um, the message that was so horrible, I've been in that place, but more it's because I'm a neonatologist. And so I'm standing there talking to people about their 24 week baby who's not doing very well. And I'm pregnant, you know, out to my knees or whatever. Um, And it's really difficult. You, you, you want to suck your baby in and you want to not look so pregnant because it's like this visual reminder. I'm standing here looking very pregnant and I am a visual reminder of all the things that you want that you can't have right now. And you feel, I felt guilty just standing there being pregnant. Yeah, I, I think the fact that you can reflect on that is 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 really important as a as a practitioner because Bethany and I have interviewed um, infertility practitioners who were pregnant and didn't mention any sort of uncomfortable feelings about being pregnant in front of people going through really difficult times. And so, uh, but you know, Bethany and I have written actually about 
the, you know, the ways in which, you know, I would try to cover my belly so that, you know, so that it wouldn't be the focus of us talking together. Or I would look down if we were walking through the streets of New York City because everybody smiles at a pregnant person. You know, you can't help but, you know, and people want to ask questions when you're standing in line and, you know, and tell their great stories or their horrible stories. And so, um, you know, Bethany talks about um, fertility privilege and the ways in which I had fertility privilege, just given that I was able to get pregnant easily and, you know, was able to stay pregnant. Um, and so, you know, just becoming more aware of that, I think, has made me, you know, a, a better researcher, a better friend, a, you know, more supportive of, of others. And, you know, Bethany and I were also writing about baby loss while one of us was, was pregnant. And so, you know, we had to do a lot of, you know, thinking about self-care um, when going through through some of these um, these chapters that were difficult for us personally and um, professionally. I, I want to go back to what you were talking about with Instagram, with how people have their personal accounts, and then they mm-hmm. can create these other accounts that are more private, that are specific, that they can reach out to very particular communities. Mm-hmm. So I was never a big user of social media. I would put posts up and mostly for people that live out of town to see, but I didn't really partake in social media, like go out and look for things. And since doing Mighty Littles, I have done more of that. And I, I think that social media can be really, really harmful in that when you are going through infertility treatments or you have a baby in the NICU and you see all of these pictures of friends or family or the influencers with their perfect babies and their perfect nurseries and their perfect pregnancy and you're not going through that it just can really really be hurtful but it can also be helpful from the standpoint of you can find these sub communities Uh can you guys Mm -hmm. talk about ways that you've seen people use social media to their benefit and ways that you've seen social media really become a detriment to people who are going through any type of parenting where somebody could say you're doing it wrong? Our book was about crises that individuals are experiencing from um, preconception through early toddlerhood. So most people are going to social media for help or for you know feedback or for advice um, when they're going through a difficult time. And so... Over, overall, I would say those, you know, there tend to be, we have a lot of really negative experiences that we, we witnessed and, and participated, but we also um, had some really good experiences with, with, with our, you know, with per- personally and, and saw some really great things happen. Like, for example, when Bethany's second baby was born, um, her milk hadn't come in right away. And so, um, you know, it was also during um, Breastfeeding Awareness Week. And so that was a shaming, um, difficult time to be having trouble breastfeeding when you're, you know, she didn't even know yet that her son had you know, some dairy intolerances and had a tongue tie. And, you know, is, you know, reading about people who, you know, who, who had you know, we're going through cancer treatments or, you know, doing and breastfed and I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, but so when that became difficult for her, you know, she reached out to me and I was able to, 
you know, find her donor milk through, through groups. And so, you know, I think that's a really positive example of the way um, that social media can be helpful. When my son was, um, it was a false positive, but it was shown that he had um, high levels of lead in his, in his blood. And, you know, I was able to connect with people who, um, you know, who helped me explain more about what that meant. And I was, of course, blaming myself that I had, you know, given him too many McDonald's toys or, you know, I had been living in an old house with lead paint and, you know, feeling a lot of shame and guilt and, and things like that. And so I was able, you know, to connect with people who said things to me that that made it less about me and more about the structures that we're in, right? It's so much easier to blame the mom than it is to change building culture, you know, to change our water system and how we, you know, process meats and, th and things like that. So, um, so those are just two positive examples. Um, Bethany, did you want to share any negative ones? <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking another positive thing that I don't know if I've realized before, and you and I have talked about all this stuff, Maggie, it's funny that I continue to learn from our conversations because one of the positive things I saw is that, you know, whether you're looking for breast milk because your baby has intolerances you're not sure about and you can get. So it was interesting to me is that I was having trouble tracking down. So the formula that was available, they're like, my pediatrician didn't have samples and it was $80 a container. It's so expensive. But Maggie knew someone who was on a dairy free diet for her kid and had extra breast milk. She was like, I know this person. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm doing that. And I know a lot of people would be like, gross. I would never consider that. And I'm like, well, I also have spent 10 years reading about wet nurses. So yeah, it's fine. I'm, I'm fine with it. And that's, a, that's a, a choice that many people would not make. And I get that. But what has been interesting to me is that you can also find unused formula before it's expired. Um, people that are like, I have this crib and I don't just want to put it on the side of the road. Does anyone really need it? And so there's a lot of resource sharing that I think I wouldn't have been expecting to find on social media platforms. Um, I'm, I'm putting these old books out. Does anyone want them before I give them away to, you know, a book drive? And then there's another parent who's like, yes, I would really like those. My child happens to be obsessed with trains right now. You know, so I, I, that has been unexpected. And I think great for me um, to see. I think the things that, um, and maybe you can relate to this as a NICU doctor, the things that alarm Maggie and I the most are when people post a picture that they took of something that happened to their child to ask if it is emergent. Like, should I go to the emergency room for this? Like, I don't, I don't think we are qualified to tell you, ma'am. Like, I, I, where did you take this picture? Are you in an empty closet like I am right now? Because the lighting in here is going to really change how that rash looks. We would love to support you, but we can't tell you if this is dangerous or not. And yet at the same time, you know, something that Maggie always brings up is people don't always have the resource to engage a doctor right away. They can't just truck their whole family off with no transportation and two or three kids to the emergency room. And so we understand that there are lots of reasons why people try to source knowledge and information before engaging in a system that might be um, prohibitively expensive for them. But you can also be getting, like your child could be having an allergic reaction that could lead to anaphylaxis and someone's telling you it's, you know, oh, so that makes me nervous. So Maggie and I tried to think about like, what are different ways, you know, can, could we get on there and be like, you know, could, could you get a telehealth appointment? I don't, 
those are a lot cheaper than going to the doctor. Or I, I'm going to Venmo you for a coffee tomorrow. It sounds like you could have a long night if you're going to be in the ER. You know, like just a way to step in and say, I see what's going on and I see what's hard here. I'm not going to offer you medical expertise that I don't have. Um, and I'm going to direct you to medical expertise that will hopefully be helpful in this particular situation, but maybe make suggestions for how that could be more easily accessible and then how we could support people through that instead of saying like, well, that's topical dermatitis. Like, oh, are you a dermatologist? You know, and, you know, people could be right. Um, people could be right, but they could be wrong. Okay, where I struggle with so social media the most is that social media has the best of the best and the worst of the worst, right? Yeah. So my 19-week-old gestation, my 19-week gestation baby was born and weighed three pounds and went home in two weeks. Okay, you weren't 19 weeks. And so there's this, that's that just provides a huge opportunity for people to be disappointed when their 19 week baby absolutely doesn't weigh a half a pound and doesn't right. come home and then like the, if you had a 19 week old baby that weighed three pounds wouldn't they actually be worried yes like, because it be would be high drops yeah yes <laughs> like that's not no that's not what you're looking for yeah yeah no that i mean i specifically made the example so dramatic that it could never right. happen right um, <laughs> Because because sometimes you'll see that, right? Or mm-hmm. um, or people will put on there, they told me all of this really bad stuff was going to happen, and look, my child is totally fine. And so it tends to be the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And Absolutely. kind of the middle 50% tends to be lacking, that gray area where things aren't all good or all bad. And I feel like that gives people misinformation about what to expect as a parent and leads to, well, if their child did perfectly, then why didn't mine? I must have done something wrong. I'm the error, right? There's nothing systemic or community-based that's changing outcomes or just something purely uncontrollable, like how genes get together in the reproduction process. You right. know, like there's a lot out of our control um, that we take on. And I think you're right. I think that I, I actually, in the last couple of months, I have stepped in to try to put gray in. It was in one of these situations where people were like, I would never go to a hospital to give birth and be disrespected and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, and it wasn't like a, it was just a big mom's group or something. Um, and I was like, well, I was at a hospital and I had a nurse midwife and I had a doula there and I had a great experience. And they were like, well, you know, I just wouldn't choose that. I'm like, that's cute for you. I had gestational diabetes. So before you, you know, stand out here and be like, I wouldn't choose that. You need to understand that there are bodies that make the choice for us. And I need you to make space for that. Right. My body chose. <laughs> My body chose exactly what kind of birth environment I was going to be able to be in. And you know what? I knew that my, that that was going to be my option, that my plan had changed and I was privileged enough to have the resources to make it great. My job then is to say, how do I use my privilege? How do I use my reach to make sure that other people can choose into, you know, modifying the birth in the ways that they can to make themselves feel supported when there are those other challenges there. And there are a lot of people that have no desire to give birth with a midwife, none whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? So like, how do we make space for those people to make that choice as well? Right. Well, and there needs to be space for all of it. Nobody's experience is going to be exactly the same and nobody's decision making is going to be based on the same 
underlying factors, right? So mm-hmm. if you want to breastfeed, breastfeed. If you want to bottle feed, bottle feed. If you want to deliver in a hospital, deliver in a hospital. If you want a midwife, deliver with a midwife. As long as you're informed about what it is you're deciding, mm-hmm. it's fine. You you make choices for you. But I hate knowing that sometimes people aren't informed or they yeah. are informed, but then they're scared because of something they saw on social media that may or may not be reflective of what really happens. For my NICU listeners, I really want to talk about the history of NICUs. I was talking to my husband about it the other day, and he um, said, what? What? It was Coney Island? What? That's where NICUs came from? And I was like, well, yeah, in in some way, shape, or form. So I was hoping that you would um, give us some education about the history of NICUs. You start it, Papini. <laughs> um, so I will tell your listeners there are tons of resources out there, particularly on the BBC and NPR. Um, actually, uh, I will say that Maggie and I certainly did not break this story. The story of Coney, Cooney um, on Coney Island um, has been written up. Um, Jeffrey Baker, who is out of either USC Chapel Hill or Duke. I think it's Duke. Duke. Yeah. He wrote um, a great dissertation and then a book on it. He goes, he takes a real deep dive and he is actually a a NICU doctor who went and got a PhD in history. Wow. Unimaginable to me. Um, (laughs) So the reason that Maggie and I were also examining this is because we couldn't understand the story as it kept getting perpetuated on social media. So every year, Coney Island celebrates its anniversary and there's this big exposition and WNYC and all these other local, you know, radio stations and podcasts. And then the BBC and NPR and everybody kind of does their sort of annual, these kooky things at um, Coney Island. And this was such a big part of American history. And they would always be talking about this maverick, you know, who started the the NICU on Coney Island. And that's why we have a NICU in America today. And Maggie and I were like, why? Okay, let's look into that, this. Um, and what we realized is that all of these media sources and bloggers and podcasters kept saying that he was a doctor. And we don't think that he was a doctor. I would say he was a medical technician. He understood the technology very well. And he was very good at explaining to the public who was paying to view these babies in the earliest um, incubators what was going on and to make them feel like they had gotten their money's worth. That's not to say he didn't save thousands of babies doing that, but there is no reliable evidence that he had any medical training whatsoever. And that is the story that Maggie and I were really caught up in. Maggie, do you want to say more about that? Yeah, I think, you know, it really begs the question of, what is an expert and on social media, right? We see so many different people claiming to be experts. And Bethany always makes me laugh when she says that on social media, what being an expert looks like is somebody who's really confident. And that's true. That's so true. Then it's believable. And Dr. Cooney was very, very believable. Um, I think what really fascinated me about this chapter was sort of the fears around technology replacing the mother, right? That you, <laughs> that you could take these NICU babies and the, the, incub- the incubator would do a better job of mothering than a, than a woman. And, you know, do- 
Dr. Cooney trained the nurses um, and told them what to eat and scolded them if they ate orange drink or drank orange drink or ate a hot dog. And, you know, we're, he was very disciplined with the right way to mother that some of the mothers of these children who had to, you know, pay to park when they went to, to Coney Island and had to, you know, visit, visit their children were afraid to bring their babies home, right? Because they didn't know how to bathe them. They didn't know how, you know, to properly take care of them because they weren't included in the process. And so mm -hmm. it's just fascinating for me, you know, thinking of how much we encourage, you know, kangaroo care today and, mm -hmm. you know, including the parents in it. And my sister-in-law who had a, a baby in the NICU who had to take a break from her maternity leave. So she would have the maternity leave when she came home, went back to work. And then she was scolded by doctors um, and nurses in the hospital for not being there enough. And that was told, you know, not to be there all the time because she needed to rest. And, and so, you know, a lot of the conflicting messages that we see, um, you know, in the 1900s, you know, you, you still see some of the repercussions of that today and the ways in which, you know, a lot has advanced. And at that time, really getting the babies out of the hospital was the safest place, right, that we know so much more about germs and bacteria. Um, and so, you know, having the babies on display probably really was was safer. And so, you know, I just it makes me laugh thinking that, you know, he becomes the father of premature babies and, you know, people, you know, gave him all of this credit when it really was the, the nurses who were doing a lot of the work. And so, yeah. you know, it's just a very complicated story that um, that that, you know, we still we still see on social media every year. And we had the honor of getting to talk to one of his NICU babies um, who was in her 90s at the time that we interviewed her um, and just how much she loved him and, you know, just the, the huge following that he has. And it, it is really just such a fascinating historical story. And the thing that I've never heard in any of the social media or sort of more traditional media posts, um, and, and oddly, Dr. Cooney never mentioned, um, because he had a lot to say about why premature births were happening. And his take was that women were eating too many delicatessen luncheons and driving around in fast cars, um, which he found is the downfall of society. And, um, but interestingly, his own and only daughter, Hildegard Cooney was born prematurely and he had to get an incubator out of storage to keep her alive over the winter season in their home. So um, for some some reason, Cooney's wife didn't seem to do it right, but he forgot to tell that story for 40 years while he was doing this work. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting that, um, so babies, so somewhere between late 1800s, early 1900s to 2020 today, and really before that, like the 70s and 80s, probably, 1970s and 80s, we went from babies need to be born healthy and vigorous. And if they're not healthy and vigorous, then we don't, we don't intervene on their behalf. It's just a baby. Um, and you can have another one, right? It's, it's not that they were disposable or expendable per se, but... Mm -hmm. Women had many children, and if the child wasn't born healthy and vigorous, there wasn't a lot of energy that was put into that child. 
And then it was considered unkind. Why would you try to save someone so that they can suffer was the idea at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and they didn't have feeding tubes. Anything supportive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have all the modern technology that we have, right? Like, it's not a criticism. It's just the what it was. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you couldn't survive on your own, then you weren't going to survive. Right. Um, so somewhere between there and now, it's really the pendulum has swung completely in the other direction to mm-hmm. where every child is worth saving at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that started with technology. Part of that started with modernization and women having fewer children. So if mm-hmm. you're not going to have so many children, you're going to put more energy into each individual child. And part of that started because of these incubators where you you could actually help these children. And then we had surfactant and now you can help smaller and smaller children so that you can put more resources into these children. So I think that's part of what fascinates me about the story is how it went from you have to be just completely independent as a baby and strong to now we save everybody. I think that's a fascinating part of the history and and how it just kind of continues to go, which then enters back into the ethics around viability and the ethics Mm -hmm. of how far do we push that technology. And, you know, in history, we call this anachronism. And I've seen this on the social media posts. Um, because you'll hear numbers range from between like five and 8,000 babies that Cooney saved. He had two displays. Um, but there's something like a 95% survival rate. And so you see people going on these social media posts and being like, wow, you know, doctors today could really learn a thing or two. And I'm like, no, 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 let's review these babies were already self-selected as even though they were premature, like the babies were taken out of the hospital by their parent and survived a cab ride to Coney Island. So these babies already had a shot, right? These are not the babies that are being saved today. You know, there were babies that were under two pounds that lived, but they were probably also 36 to 38 weeks and were just, you know, had been like constrained in some way or their mother was malnourished or, you know, and there were other issues at play, but, you know, in terms of, right, you're just not taking these super, super young babies. Beth Allen, I think the person that we interviewed, didn't her dad wrap her up in a newspaper and take her to Coney Island? You have to have a certain level of health to be able to survive that as a premature baby. And so I see people making these assumptions and these comment chains, and I'm like, no, that's not who Cooney was saving here. You know, and, and, but we do that. We just think about our reality now and what's possible. We think about pictures of babies we've seen in the NICU and we just automatically project that back and think that people were dealing with the same level of prematurity and they just weren't. No, they, they just weren't. I find a lot of times in my moms in the NICU that there is a ton of shame and guilt around not being able to carry their baby to term and feeling like they did something wrong. And so one of the things that I'm always trying to impart to them is that they did everything right. They did what their body could do. And Mm -hmm. how lucky are we that we're now living in 2020 where we have the capability to be able to help these smaller babies. When you were doing your research um, and interviewing people about, you know, doing it wrong and 
what what did you come across from a maternal guilt and shame standpoint? Well, I think we also we need to really pay attention to language, right? That even the label incompetent cervix that can lead to premature births, right? That that phrase alone blames the mother on the mother, right? It was her cervix. Your body is incompetent. That is why your baby is here. Exactly, right? We would never tell a penis that it's incompetent, right? Only a cervix can can be. We so, still try to be gentle with it. Erectile dysfunction instead of like erectile failure. Yes, know. that's true. <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, just even how things are, are framed that, that leads to that. What, what would you add, Bethany? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Still, you know, I think there could be a change in medical language that could still be medically accurate, but doesn't use that blaming language because a doctor can tell you nine ways from Sunday it wasn't your fault. And then they see their chart and it says incompetent cervix. You've given them the word incompetent. So you can say they're competent all day, but the medical records created by the institution treating their child has said that they are incompetent. And that has gone in the medical record, which is reported to the insurance company. So I think there are there. And this is something that that's a diagnosis that's like 60 years old at this point. So I would say experts like in your community could say, are there ways that we could look at some of the language that we are using that would still be medically accurate, things that we know to be true? But might not put the onus, like, but might might not say like we have this failed machine and it happens to be your body, and that's why this baby is here. So that's definitely something that um, Michaela, who we um, interviewed, she had that. Uh, she actually wrote her dissertation on that diagnosis because it stuck with her and it was so hurtful and harmful to her. And she had a surclage for her second pregnancy and she was able to do that. She didn't. She didn't say. Um, you know, particularly that the doctors that she worked with, she loved her NICU doctors and her NICU nurses. Um, it was the diagnosis that felt most shameful to her and made it hard for her to believe like she hadn't done anything wrong. That was a huge lesson for us because it was very distinct from the care she was receiving and the communication she was experiencing with her medical practitioners. But that piece couldn't fill that, like bridge that gap. Yeah. Another thing I've been thinking a lot about is just the connection between African-Americans and premature birth um, and just the ways in which racism plays into, mm-hmm. into that. And so, you know, if you were an African-American mom in the NICU, having somebody explain or, you know, at least talk about the role of stress and the role of you know, stuff out of their control that could potentially have led to this, led to this outcome. Yeah. The research back term is weathering, um, that that has a measurable short and long-term impact on health, including cortisol levels, sleep patterns, um, weight patterns, um, blood pressure, things like that. And, and weathering is, the term used to describe the constellation of medical results of living in a a racist society. And so all of those things can actually impact how long you're pregnant for or your ability to carry a child to term. Um, But we don't often hear those conversations happening. And certainly we're hearing from, you know, women who were in a NICU and who are black, particularly saying, you know, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to think through 
my own health in this context. And like, I don't have the language for this, you know, and we're, and Maggie and I can see the language happening in very disparate areas, but see how it's connected. And so we're always trying to help build those bridges whenever we can, but we don't have, we're certainly not NICU doctors, you know, so we can't like, there's only, we can just say like, isn't this interesting? Um, and, and hope that people who have the, the training and the expertise can be thinking through like, what, what are ways we can understand this better, or bring it into our practice. It's interesting because in the NICU in general, um, black babies do better than mm-hmm. white babies but from yeah and girls do better than boy and babies if yeah. you take all comers girls are going to do a little bit better than boys which is where the that classic wimpy white male comes from and strong black girl comes from because in the NICU mm-hmm. you the the black girls are very very resilient and the white boys are sometimes a little bit more lazy and difficult to treat um and what in their genetic constitution makes that happen? I don't think anybody knows. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's not always the case, right? There are some right. very, very, the, the variation within is larger than the, the mean of either one, right? So right. <laughs> you can have a very, very strong white boy and you can have a very, very sickly black girl. But if you take all comers, it's going to be the reverse of that. So in the NICU, it plays out a little bit differently than in the maternal side, where the maternal right. side, you very clearly see that African-American and black moms have more complications, more postpartum um death just a lot more difficulty from that standpoint and i and i know that there are organizations out there that are trying to research why that is um Mm -hmm. and how much of it is the weathering component how much of it is genetic how much of it is societal racism that blows off those concerns where um well you're coming in like serena williams where you're like crawling to the nurse's station like okay, but I've been on heparin and I really feel like I have a blood clot. I'd really like you to try it. And they're like, no, it's baby blues. And then you're have this massive health event and you have a massive surgery and are in bed for six weeks. Correct. I mean, there's, I think it's a combination of, of all of that. And it's nice to see Mm -hmm. the current movement that's happening. Um, it's terrible. The circumstances under which it fell, but if you look back, um, at all the protests that have happened previous to now, this these protests are the most integrated, the most all-encompassing. There's old, there's young, there's white, there's black, there's yellow, there's brown. Um, there's health professionals, there's inner city, there's suburban. These protests have been much more global. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that with that, there can be some drive to support the organizations that are trying to solve the disparity in health health outcomes between the black moms and the non-black moms. And I think one of the ways we can look at social media as a positive is that, you know, it is, it, it you know, I guess to a point, because if you want to be like an Instagram business, but if you're on Instagram, um, you know, we follow Shishi Rose, who's a black doula out of New York City and is in postpartum right now under COVID. And, you know, you can set up an Instagram account. And if you have a phone and you have an Internet connection, 
that is the cost of sharing your narrative. And it's, it's not available to everyone, but it's available to so many more people than say a personal computer was in 1994, you know? Um, so we're, we we are seeing and if people want to find these richer more complicated narratives in terms of i know i mean richer more complicated and it's not my narrative you know this person doesn't look like me they haven't had my life and my experience let me hear their story it's so easy to find on instagram and i think during these protests as well you're seeing a lot of people saying hey are you following the conscious kid are you following this nikki account are you following the these four doulas are you following you know, that, you know, these pediatricians who are telling their story online. And so there's a lot of space for people to, um, if they're interested to really educate themselves on the vast variety of lived experience, um, that people come into the NICU with and to the maternity ward and other places. Right. Exactly. What did I not ask you about that you are just dying to share? What do you think, Maggie? Oh, I think we covered so much. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. This was great. Thank you for having us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for joining me. It was just really so much fun. And I could talk to you guys all day. I just really, really have enjoyed talking to you. Well, keep it too. As you write your book too. We'd love to talk to you about it. It sounds like you might have to have a COVID chapter in there. Yes. I don't know what it's about, but can you shoehorn COVID? <laughs> Somehow in there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of funny because my, the drive behind everything was to write this book about the NICU. But in order to write the book about the NICU, I needed to get NICU stories. And in order to do that, I needed to talk to people. And I was like, well, if I'm talking to people, I should be sharing these stories with the pod, with a podcast. And so the podcast is coming first. But the drive behind it was the book, which is going to take a little bit longer. So it's, it's interesting. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast.